is summertime. I am already sweating. So that means you're going to have to look at an absolute mess of a human being for the next few minutes. Also could mean the sermons will get shorter. Uh, so you might benefit from this, this heat. But it's good to be back with you this week. Uh, certainly missed you last week while we were away. Uh, hope you can say the same, but I missed you guys. And um, we, we have another week, and then uh, myself and the boys, all, all three of them will be gone to camp uh, for middle camp. So it's a busy time. Uh, and generally our summers are fairly sporadic with attendance because we have people coming and going for various things, camp and other things. And here I... I would say this is probably the biggest crowd we've had in, in over a year, uh, given, given COVID and everything that's gone on. So it's really good to see everyone and glad that we can all be together. We started a series a few weeks ago on man's search for significance. And we're discussing the lies that Satan tells us and the truths that are in God's love and how so often we find ourselves distracted and bogged down in the things that we feel about ourselves uh, and, and how we evaluate our own life. And we're constantly in a journey looking for meaning in life. That is the, the part of the human condition. And Satan uses this to try and trip us up and to distract us and take us away from the Lord and his will for our life. Last, or two weeks ago, rather, we talked about the origins of that search for significance and where it has its roots. And we went back to the garden and we looked at Adam and Eve and, and the, the sin that was committed in the garden that cast them out of this paradise that God had intended. They had a relationship, person to person, one-on-one, -on -one, face to face with God. They walked together, they dwelled together and sin separated them. And ever since, mankind has been on a journey looking for meaning and looking for connection. And Satan lies to us and tells us things about ourselves that draws us away from God. Meanwhile, the truths of God draw us nearer. And so for the next few weeks in this series, that's what we're going to look at. The lies that Satan tells and the truths that God offers in response to those lies. And we must choose what we're going to believe. We must choose what we're going to follow after. The biggest lie that Satan tells, and I talked about this a couple weeks ago, and it really is the theme of his existence, is that you're not worth it. You're not good enough, and you're not worth your effort. You're not worth God's love. That is the core of every lie that Satan will tell us. You're not worth it, and you're not good enough. Today we're going to look at the lie of performance, the performance trap that we find ourselves in. And it's based in a very specific lie, a lie that we tell ourselves and that Satan tells us and that we believe. That is the lie that I must meet st certain standards in order to have significance, in order for people to like me. I must meet a certain standard. We become captive many times to our own inability. We become paralyzed by our own failures and by the, the chances of our failure. That verse that was just read in Colossians, I want to return to that briefly. Colossians chapter 2, verse 8. And let's look at what Paul encourages there to the church he's writing to. Colossians chapter 2 and verse 8. 
He says, see to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. Don't be drawn away from Jesus by the standards of the world, by the definitions of the world. Whether that be a, a philosophy or a, a, a new religious uh, point of view, whatever it is, if it's from the world, don't let it distract you and pull you from Christ, from Jesus, the anchor and the source of our significance. And yet we become captives to ourselves and our own inability, our own imperfection our own failures. We distract ourselves from that which gives us true significance by focusing on that which the world defines as significance. True maturity is the testing of our thoughts and our feelings against the Word of God and what it tells us. One of those things that we tell ourselves is that success will bring us happiness. Success will bring us happiness and satisfaction and significance. This is one of the lies of the world. This is one of the things we buy into. And we direct our lives toward it. And despite how much success we might have, even if it's the vast majority of the time, it is human nature that failure dominates our memory. We remember the failures a lot more than we remember the successes. We remember the hard times and the mistakes a lot more than we remember the good times and the things that we did well. Failure dominates our memory even when it's in the minority. And this leads to some negative outcomes. It leads to some changes in how we approach life. It leads us into perfectionism. The incessant uh, demand that we put on ourselves to do everything exactly right now, outwardly, perfectionists are often admired. We see people that are high achievers, that demand excellence, that don't settle for less. We admire that. But inwardly, people who are slaves to perfectionism are destroying themselves because we can't be perfect, whether it's in your job, in your relationships, or in your spiritual life. We see perfectionism on display in Scripture in the time of Christ. The history, I, ho I hope that you tune in on, on Thursday nights, we're doing it on Thursday nights right now, uh, to our midweek Bible study, where we're studying the history of the Bible, how we got the 66 books we have in our hand today, how that came to be. Uh, and if you look at the history of the Jewish people and their relationship with the law, you know, there were periods of time where it was lost for long periods of time. They had forgotten it, it's rediscovered, and it's edited a little bit, some things are added, some things are changed to kind of flesh it out in more detail. All in a pursuit of getting it right. In 622 B.C. when they discover what we think is part of the book of Deuteronomy, uh, though it wasn't called Deuteronomy at the time, it didn't have a name, it was just a book of law. Uh, it was discovered and it was the time of Jeremiah. Uh, Jeremiah, but more likely Baruch, his, his scribe, took that book of law Josiah, who was the king in, in Judah, decided we're going to enact some reforms so we can better keep this law. And then Baruch, or we think it's Baruch, they call him the Deuteronomist, scholars call him. He went about editing and aggregating and finalizing those first five books of what we call the Old Testament. And he, 
pieced those together and fleshed out a law that reflected the reforms that Josiah was putting in place, which was to take the core of the law and put it into practice in daily life. And on and on this went. And in the time of Jesus, we see this in all these rules, written and unwritten, that the people had to keep in order to be perfect in their adherence to a law. This was the religion at the time of Christ. Perfectionism was sought in order to be closer to God. But as we see in that time, these rules can become burdensome. These rules that we place on ourselves can become burdensome. When we fail to give ourselves and those around us grace, they are weaponized. We talk a lot about the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the teachers, and we criticize things and we talk about kind of how they approached God and the law. And all that aside, as far as it applies to church life today, don't be your own Pharisee in your personal life. Don't be your own Pharisee. Don't write rules that are not written. Don't hold yourself to a standard that is, that, that is not bound on us. And I'm not talking about even God's law. I'm talking about life in general. The pursuit of perfectionism is destructive. We also, when we fear failure, we avoid risk. We remember how much it hurt to fail the first time. We don't want to do it again. That's human nature. That's avoiding the pain, avoiding the things that we don't give ourselves permission to try. And what things might we miss out on? when we don't give ourselves permission to try because of our fear of failure, because we've bought into the lie that I have to attain a certain level of success, I have to meet a certain standard in order to please God and to please others. We drift into anger and resentment. We blame those around us and we blame ourselves. We have an, un, uh, an unnecessary sense of pride on the things we do succeed at, and we hold ourselves to the standard of pride to cover up the things that we feel bad that we've fallen short on. Depression, low motivation. In short, buying into the performance lie entangles our identity with success. Now, should we live according to a certain standard and should we reach for things? Yes, absolutely. We'll talk about that in a little bit. But it's not... It's not the things God calls us to that we are struggling with or dealing with here. It's the things we put on ourselves, we create out of thin air. It's the answer to Satan's lie that you're not good enough and you never will be. And we try to cover that by buying into the notion that if we just succeed a little more or just meet the world's definition of success, we'll be happy. And we'll be satisfied. It's chasing after the wrong thing. Failures can be an opportunity for us if we let God in. Look at Psalm 107. If you have your Bible, turn to Psalm 107. We're going to look at verse 33 and through 36. Psalm 107, 33. He changes rivers into a wilderness and springs of water into a thirsty ground, a fruitful land into a salt waste. Because of the wickedness of those who dwell in it, he changes a wilderness into a pool of water and a dry land into springs of water, and there he makes the hungry to dwell so that they may establish an inhabited city. You see, God has the power to both 
destroy and make destitute that which is wicked, but he also has the power to restore those who pursue him. Failures can be a strength if we let God in to fill in the gaps of our own shortcoming. God's answer to this lie, and this is what we're going to look at these few weeks. We're going to look at Satan's lie, what it does to our life, and then look God's answer. Okay, so we're going to juxtapose the two. Because when we pursue perfection, when we pursue the world's standard, when we base our self-worth on the world's definition or Satan's definition, we miss out on so much and we disrespect and insult what God has done for us. The price that Jesus paid on the cross, so deep and so vast, if we see ourselves as unworthy, we're insulting that death. We want to see it for what it is and see our lives for what they are and define ourselves the way God defines us because otherwise we become paralyzed in our failure. We stop pursuing the standard that God has established because we failed to meet a standard that the world has established. So what's God's answer to this? God's answer to the performance lie is justification. Justification, because we are justified by God. Failure isn't what determines our worth. God's rescue from failure is what determines our worth. And he has rescued us every time and he continues to through the power of Christ. So what is justification? Well, let me ask you a question. Does God know you? Does God know who you are? We use this phrase a lot. Well, in God's eyes... I'm forgiven. In God's eyes, I'm pure. In God's eyes, I'm sinless. In God's eyes, I'm worthy. I know what people mean when they say that. But when we say in God's eyes, there's an implication there that God is engaged in some sort of self-deception that he has to pretend that you're different than you really are. When we talk about something being true in God's eyes, we're leaving the room there that it's not really true objectively, it's just that God chooses to see us that way. Are we forgiven or aren't we? Or are we just forgiven in God's eyes? That phrase can be problematic for us. Does God know who we are? Does he truly see you? for who you are? Or is he engaged in some sort of self-deception, lying to himself about who you are? Well, I think we know that he's not doing that. So if he says we're forgiven, we are forgiven. Not just in God's eyes, in our own eyes. We have to accept that this is who we are. Our identity is determined by God. Now, the real question is, who's wrong? Who's wrong? If you see yourself as a failure, if you see yourself as falling short, if you see yourself as not worthy the way Satan has said you are, but God sees you and God knows and you are forgiven, which one of you is wrong? Is God wrong? Or are you judging yourself by the wrong standard? God's answer to the lie of performance, Satan's lie, that you must do good enough to be good enough is justification. Justification 
is the way God rescues us from these failures, the way he rescues us from our sin. The false equation that we've built is self-worth equals performance plus other people's opinions. That's the way we have constructed our world. Self-worth equals performance, what we achieve, plus other people's opinions, what they think of us. And God completely cancels out that entire equation. He has justified us and placed us in good standing with him. But not only that, he has given us the righteousness of Christ in doing so. Not only are we in good standing, but we are imputed with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we'll begin in verse 12. We are not again commending ourselves to you, but are giving you an occasion to be proud of us so that you will have an answer for those who take pride in appearance and not in heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are uh, of sound mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died, and he died for all, so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. When Jesus died for us, when we died to sin, we were given the righteousness of Jesus Christ. We're not just in good standing. We're just not a, a, a debtor whose debt has been paid. We're something new. Paul describes it later in, in well, later. <laughs> Might have been the first book written. Galatians. Galatians chapter 3. 26 and 27, what does he say? You're all the sons of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. When you enter into a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, he sees you as Christ with that righteousness imputed to you. It's not just the canceling of debt. The debt never happened. Jesus erases it from existence. God attributes Christ's righteousness to us when we're in a relationship with him because Jesus repaired a broken relationship. We look at Romans chapter 5, and we'll, we'll go there in just a moment, but you can turn there and be ready. But in Romans chapter 5, Paul, and this is really a turning point in the whole letter, Paul is talking about sin and the destructiveness of sin. Now, if you want to talk about significance and failure and performance, look at the Jews and Gentiles in the church in Rome in the middle part of the first century. They were a mess. And they want Paul to sort this thing out and tell them who's right and who's wrong. And he says, you're both wrong. You know why? Because you're both going to hell. You're both full of sin, as all human beings are. The only chance you have is Jesus Christ. Paul leveled the playing field with that statement. All you have is Christ. Doesn't matter who, who your parents were, what tribe you were from, and how well you kept the law. Doesn't matter that you, you know, have been a part of this church for so long or you've done these good deeds. What matters is that Jesus Christ died for you. And without him, you have no hope. So in chapter 5, he writes this. Beginning in verse 1, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Christ Jesus. 
through whom we also have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we exult in hope of the glory of God. We are clothed with Christ, and we are given a right relationship with God because of the righteousness of Christ. God has freed us from the trap of performance. We are redeemed, but we are also experiencing the benefits of redemption in this life because of what Christ did on the cross. We are declared righteous. Declared righteous. Now think about that. How does God work? How does God make things happen? He's declarative. Go back to Genesis. Let there be light, and there was light. Let there be a separation between the water and the land, and there was, and between the sky and the, and the land, and there was. Let there be animals, let there be fish, let there be plants, let there be vegetation. He spoke it into existence, and it happened. The same power and the same God that speaks creation into existence speaks into you a righteousness. He declares you righteous. Now, if the sun shines and the earth turns and the tides come in and out and the animals live and the plants reproduce after their kind, if all of that works because he spoke it and said it was so, why should we think we are any less righteous when he has declared us to be through Christ? Why are we entangled with our identity and our performance rather than the trust that we are worthy because God says we're worthy because he sent his son to die for us. Now, the inevitable question, does this mean that our actions don't matter or that there is no standard to live up to? No, absolutely not. We're talking about the world's definitions, the world's standards. Should we seek to achieve, build your career, have a, have a good, strong family life, good friendship. Absolutely. Be a good citizen, all of that. We're not talking about what you ought to do or what might be good. To, what happens when you fail is the question. Are you going to let those things in this world define you or are you going to let God define you? And in your pursuit of achievement and success, have yourself anchored in the Lord so that when you fall short, you know who you belong to. Of course, our actions matter, even spiritually. We don't mean to imply that there's no spiritual standard for us to live up to. Uh, that's throughout Scripture. Let's look at a couple of verses. Let's start in 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 19. Let's start in verse 17. But the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom uh, you have from God, and that you are not your own? Look at verse 20. You have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. The concept that what we do physically can impact us spiritually. And what we do spiritually can impact us physically. That, that flies in the face of the philosophy of that age in which it was written, by the way. Interesting words from Paul. 2 Corinthians. Let's move forward now to 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 9. 
Therefore, we also have our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Obedience is absolutely a standard of God. But obedience is not the same as performance. Obedience is not a matter of self-worth or performance. Obedience is living up to the worth that we already have as children of God. I think this is the one, as I talk to other preachers and interact in that community, which, by the way, I find myself not feeling at home in, right? Because I didn't go to school to do this. I didn't go to seminary. Uh, I have to work as hard as anybody in here to be ready to teach classes and preach sermons because that wasn't what I was pursuing when I was younger. And I, when I find myself in a room full of ministers and they're talking about where they got their Masters of Divinity and their PhD and all these things, I feel a little out of place. I don't feel quite as smart. I don't feel quite as capable. But there's one thing that we all have in common in this job. Our whole life sometimes can be made or broken on what people say about your sermon that day. As they leave the, the building... Oh, that was a good one. Well, I really enjoyed that. That was great. Oh, it is so easy for us to live and die by those compliments and those comments. We have to fight that in this, in this world that I find myself in. Because that's not what defines us. I'm going to have good sermons. I'm going to have bad sermons. I don't mind if you're honest with me one way or the other. And I've had people that were very, very honest at churches I've been at. And that's fine. Because I'm fighting this battle too because this, what I feel is a calling sometimes can become a job. And I can sometimes be just like you are in your job and in your lives, defining my success by the next promotion, by the paycheck, by how well you did on your last evaluation. And that's why so many preachers' families suffer because church is a job. Church puts food on the table. Church is not a safe place where we go and share with one another as a family. So if there's anybody in this room that feels this, I, I can relate. I can relate. We are not defined by the successes that the world lays before us, by the standards that the world places on us. We're not defined by our obedience. We're defined by the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. Our obedience is the standard God puts on us based on what we are worth already. Not in an effort to prove our worth. When we entangle our identity in performance and in the opinions of others. We paralyze ourselves to living for God, to living obedient lives. The key to greater obedience is to see ourselves the way God sees us the true definition of who we are. Sinners saved by the grace of God. What a wonderful fact that is. What a wonderful opportunity we have to rejoice in that. We don't have to live according to the lies of Satan. We don't have to live according to the lies of this world. 
we can live according to the truth of the gospel. Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He came to this world. He was crucified. He died for you. You can live in Him. Through baptism in His name, you can be made whole. You can come into a faithful relationship with God and you can be defined through that with the righteousness of Christ imputed unto you. If you have a need for prayer or encouragement this morning, if you want to walk in closer step with Jesus Christ, let go of the lies Satan is telling you and cling to the truth that God has revealed. You were worth the price you were paid. You were worth his son. Live accordingly. Let's stand together and sing.